after a sermon like last Sunday, warning us against falling away from the Lord, we need a sermon like this Sunday, reassuring us we are following the Lord. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9 this morning where we pick up. Hebrews 6 verse 9, but beloved. Don't you like the Bible's beloveds? Because it tells us we're talking to believers. We're talking to those who are loved by the author of Hebrews and by the Lord. But beloved, we are convinced, we are persuaded of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So we see the faith in the fruit. Anyone can claim to be a Christian, as we talked last Sunday. But assurance of salvation comes from showing the signs of salvation. So despite all that the author has just said, The author is convinced that these things are not true of his readers, this warning that he has given to them. Why? He is convinced that they are genuine believers because all the signs of true salvation have been evident in their lives. He's seen it. So that has persuaded him that they are genuine believers. When he looks at their past testimony... He sees all the signs of salvation, and that assures him that they are genuine believers, even though he has just written warning against falling away. So if you are here this morning feeling unsure of your salvation, let's take a look at how we can be reassured of our salvation in these verses. We can be reassured first because of God's character And secondly, because of our endurance in the faith. First of all, God remembers those who honor His name. Verse 10. For God is not unrighteous, unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God doesn't forget that. It is a statement of God's character. His nature. Our assurance of salvation rests, first of all, in God's character. God is not the kind of person who forgets those who honor His name. He is not unrighteous. He is not unfair. He is a righteous and just God who sees how we seek to follow Him and remembers our efforts for His name. Friends, God is not going to dump you. God is not going to reject you. You Usually we feel doubts about our salvation when one of two things happens in our lives. First, we feel doubt when we sin. We wonder if God can forgive us. And yet we are assured often in scriptures that God is a forgiving God. And that when we confess our sins, He is equally and just to forgive us our sins, right? God doesn't dump us just because we sin. Second, we feel doubt when we wonder if we have done enough for God. Have we performed well enough? Have we done enough for Him? Sometimes people feel doubt. Again, God does not dump us for our imperfect performance. Right? 
God knows our hearts and our desire to do our best for Him. He does not forget those efforts in His name. He's not that kind of God. The very fact that we worry about these matters and seek to serve Him is the best proof of our salvation because God is not the kind of person to forget our efforts in His name. What are the signs then of true salvation that God does not forget, that God remembers? First, the author says, God remembers those who work for Him. The very fact that we seek to work for the Lord indicates our walk with the Lord. Now, we don't all do it perfectly, right? We are imperfect in our service for God because we are imperfect beings. But we desire to serve Him, we seek to serve Him, and we work for Him. Salvation is by grace through faith. Is that not correct? Can you earn your salvation by good works? No. No, you cannot earn your salvation by good works. We can only accept salvation by faith as God's gift to us. It is His grace. We don't deserve it. But the faith that accepts salvation is a faith that works. Do you catch the difference? We are saved by faith and not by works. But we are saved by a faith that works. The fruit of true faith is works. It produces something. Works don't earn faith. They are the result of faith. And a faith that does not work for the Lord is not true faith. Let's go back to the analogy of the tree that Jesus used in Matthew 7. We talked a bit about it last Sunday. Jesus said, We can know a person by his works just as we know a tree by its fruits. A good tree produces good fruit. Think of it this way. Branches grow fruit, and as they grow fruit, they use up the nutrients from the sap of the tree. The process of using up the nutrients causes more sap to flow, drawing more nutrients from the roots of the tree. Without the sap flowing from the roots, the branches would die. They dry up. But the sap flows only as it is being used by the branches to produce fruit. We are the branches. By faith we draw our life from Christ. But a continual supply of fresh spiritual nutrients depends on our willingness to consume those nutrients through our work of producing fruit. It's a process. If we stop producing the fruit, the sap stops flowing, the branches are dead. So life comes by faith. But life flows to supply the works. You can't do it by yourself. It is His work in you that produces that. Works, then, are the proof of life. Fruit is the proof of faith. Where is the life tested? It is tested in the church. God remembers our work, we are told. And secondly... The love we show to his name by serving 
other Christians. The saints. Now, the saints here are not saints like we tend to think of them. Special, holy people. The saints here are every one of you in Christ. Every Christian is a saint by God's grace. It's not special people he's talking about here. It's serving other Christians. All Christians are the saints. One of the greatest proofs of Christianity is how we serve one another in the church. God remembers how we serve others in the church. And the word for serve here is the the word from which we get our English word deacon. It meant to take care of, to care for other believers. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 2, it meant to wait on tables, to serve other people. So it is basic, humble service to other Christians that is the testing ground that proves our faith. It's the way we honor the Lord's name by serving others. We love His name by serving His people. The local church is the laboratory then where faith is tested. These Hebrew Christians had displayed their love for the Lord's name by having served the other Christians in their fellowship in the past, and they were continuing to serve other Christians in the present. It's not just something that happened, it's continuing, he says. And this is how they showed that they loved the the Lord's name. Loving the Lord and loving His people go hand in hand with one another. We can't say that we love the Lord's name if we fail to serve the Lord's people. The proof that we love the Lord's name is found in how we serve the Lord's people. The local church is the laboratory where faith is tested. And I'm emphasizing the local church because that is the visible place. You know, we... I think in our culture we often have a better understanding of the universal church as the body of Christ as a whole, Christians as a whole. But the visible testing ground is actually the local church, the local assembly. We have to rub shoulders and work with people who also love the Lord. We live in a culture where many claim to love the Lord's name but they can't stand the Lord's people. Many claim to be Christians, but leave a church because they don't like someone who goes there, or they don't like the people who serve the church, or how it's being done. Friends, it is easy to love the ideal church. It is hard to love the real one. Loving the real church means loving people that rub us the wrong way or don't fulfill our needs like we think they should fulfill our needs. You say, well, Dave, okay, I love the Lord's... It's, it's certain people I can't stand. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do about that? How do I serve those people? Well, we can't serve in the abstract. We can't love in the theoretical. That's the easy part. That's why I think a lot of people have an understanding of the body of Christ, because it's kind of easy to love people you don't have to actually work with, you know? Sort of just out there. But you can't love in the theoretical. 
The only way we can serve those we struggle to love is to serve them because, did you notice it? Because we love the Lord's name. That's the starting point. He doesn't say because you like each other so much you serve. That's the easy ones. It's easy to serve those we like. What do you do with those you don't like? Right here in this church, you know? You've got to serve them because you love the Lord's name. That's the motive. That's the motive right there. I am motivated to serve you because I love the Lord's name. I want it to reflect well on Him. You can be motivated to serve me in this assembly because you love the Lord's name. Not because I'm just the greatest guy around. See, If we would think about how our actions will reflect on the Lord's name, how our relationships with one another reflect on the Lord's name, that changes our dynamics with each other. We would stick with people that we struggle to love in the church instead of giving up and, and just heading out elsewhere and starting over again. Think about it this way. If someone rubs you the wrong way in this church, just remember, you rub someone else the wrong way too. So love the Lord and serve one another. You know, we live in a consumer-oriented culture where the church is viewed like, sort of like any other organization, the local church now I'm thinking about, simply in terms of whether it meets my needs, Right? As long as the church meets my needs, then I go to that church. But when the church no longer meets my needs, I look for another one to meet my needs. Too many people go to church, quite frankly, for the wrong reasons. To meet my needs. That's the wrong reason. During her 15 years as headmistress of Spence, a prestigious Upper East Side girls' school in New York City, Edith Gilbert has seen an increasing number of parents who choose this elite elementary school because of who goes there. Contacts made at this elite elementary school can give parents a leg up in the social scene, in the career scene. Ms. Gilbert knows parents have applied to her kindergarten because the children of Sigourney Weaver or Michael Bloomberg or Katie Couric go there. Parents lobby in the office for their seven-year-olds to be assigned to classes with children whose parents are rich and prominent in hopes that the parents would become friends with those people. Parents jockey to volunteer for the parent committees that would give them the best contacts with other people. So it has degenerated, she said, to, to the point where back-to-school night has taken on the atmosphere of a competitive Park Avenue cocktail party. It's sad, she says, when people have mixed motives in the education of their children. You know what's sadder? It's sad when people have mixed motives in serving the Lord. That's what's really sad. And it's easy to slide into, isn't it? Friends, we don't go to church to be served. We go to church to serve others. 
because we love the Lord's name. Anyone can say they love the Lord. That's the easy part. We find out if we love the Lord when we serve his people. That's his test here. When we hurt the church, we hurt the Lord. When we damage the testimony of the local church, we damage the testimony of the Lord. That's the connection. God will remember how well we love his name by how well we serve others in his church. That's the test that is set up here. Do you love the Lord? Can you serve his people? Like us? One another? That's the test. Second principle then. We experience assurance through endurance. Verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience or endurance inherit the promises. Wanda's friend Linda teaches first grade. She told her about an interaction she had with one of her first graders on the very first day of school. Accustomed to going home at noon in kindergarten, Ryan was getting his things ready to go at noontime in first grade, his first day, when he was actually supposed to be heading to lunch with the rest of the class. Linda asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm going home. Linda tried to explain that now that he was a big boy in first grade, he would have a longer school day. You'll go eat lunch now, she said, and then you'll come back to the room and you'll do some more work before you go home today, because you're in first grade. Ryan looked at her in disbelief, hoping she was kidding him. Convinced of her seriousness, Ryan then put his hands on his hips and demanded, who on earth signed me up for this program? I think as Christians, we sometimes look at the Christian life a bit like that. You know, when you hear the gospel and you respond to the gospel, it sounds so good, doesn't it? Forgiveness, grace, heaven. I want to go to heaven. It's wonderful. I just accept this gift and I'm on my way. Well, who wouldn't do this? It's great. I'm forgiven. But then we start to read verses like these, and they talk about diligence, work, perseverance, patience. Who wants to learn to be patient? Endurance. This sounds so hard, so, so struggling, and we begin to doubt our decision. We start to follow the Lord, and, and, and we find out Hey, life isn't quite so easy. Faith is tested. We face hard times and struggles in our lives. And quite frankly, those other Christians aren't as nice as we thought Christians ought to be, especially to me. And we begin to think like Ryan. Who in the world signed me up for this program? It's not what I bargained for. 
Well, here's what God wants us to know about our salvation. We experience assurance of our salvation through endurance in salvation. Continuance is the test of reality. Perseverance is the proof of conversion. Endurance is the way to find assurance. So the first proof of salvation in verse 10 was that God remembers the efforts and the service that you put in for Him. That's great. The second proof of salvation is that they should display that same effort, the same diligence that they had demonstrated in service in confirming their assurance of hope until the very end. Hang on to the end. Might be by your fingernails, but hang on. Don't quit. It takes effort, it takes diligence to hang on to the full assurance of our hope until the very end. The word for hope doesn't mean, I hope so, I hope I make it. It means an expectation. It means a certain expectation. So, you hang on to the expectation you have from God. He's going to talk about the promises at the end. That expectation is what you hang on to until the very end. And that's how you reassure your heart of your salvation in Him. We can... Hang on to the full assurance of that hope, that expectation throughout life, no matter what we experience today. So maybe you're hanging on by your fingertips this week. You aren't sure that you can hang on much longer in your circumstances, but you are giving it all you've got. You are hanging on to the full assurance of your hope in Christ. You face stuff this week that you know is going to try your patience. Don't you just love it when God says he's going to try your patience? And you're going to face it, your endurance. But you are determined to hang on to the expectation of eternal life that you have in Christ. Remember to hang on. This is how one writer put it, and I like the words. The highest reward for man's toil is not what he gets for it, but what he becomes by it. The highest reward for all that work you put into in the Christian life, in this life, is not what you get from it, it is what you become by it. God is in the business of remaking us for heaven. Quite frankly, look around, look at me, look at each other. We're not, we're not there yet, are we? <laughs> we're not ready yet. He's in the business of remaking us to populate heaven. It is eternity that God is working for, not today. And so, think of all of the experiences that you go through in life. They are God's way of remaking you. Your marriage is God's way of remaking you. Your health is God's way of remaking you. Your job is God's way of remaking you. And what is he doing? He's remaking you, the Bible says, into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what you're becoming. And that's what you will be forever in heaven. In fully in the image of Jesus Christ. 
He's recreating us. So, we are to grow more and more like Jesus Christ through the experiences of this life. We learn to love like Christ then we, when we are forced to love people who don't love us back. We learn to serve like Christ when we are forced to serve people who don't appreciate us. We learn to trust Christ when our faith is tested to the very breaking point. That's why we read that our diligence to experience the full assurance of our expectation until the very end of life has a focus in this verse. In order that you don't become sluggish or lazy in following the Lord. Now that's the same word that was used back when he began this whole section in Hebrews chapter 5 in verse 11. Look at Hebrews 5.11. Here's the starting point for this section. Concerning him, we have much to say. He's going to come back to Melchizedek and the principles of Christ here. And it is hard to explain, he said, but he's going to digress to deal with this matter. Since you have become dull of hearing. That's the word for sluggish. That's the word for lazy. That's the word for slack in your spiritual experience. He was afraid that some of the people were becoming dull of hearing or sluggish in their efforts to follow the Lord. Ever been there? Don't become sluggish, slack in your faith. Don't become lazy in your spiritual life, the Bible tells us. It is so easy to become lazy and sluggish in our spiritual lives, to get out of the habit. There are so many distractions in this life. We can easily justify me time. You know, I've worked hard. I need some me time. It's time for me, God. But that can escalate, and slowly we become slack and sluggish in our spiritual lives. We sink into that spiritual sluggishness. The, the habits, and they are habits, are they not? The habit of going to church, simple habit. The habit of Bible study. The habit of service for the Lord. The habit of worship. The habit of prayer. All slip away as we slip into spiritual sluggishness and become dull of hearing. We become Christian couch potatoes. And one day, what happens is we wake up and we find out, wow, I don't feel close to the Lord anymore. I'm out of touch. Guess what? No assurance is there. We don't feel that full assurance at that point. We're out of touch with the Lord. We're out of tune. We don't feel much assurance that we're Christians anymore because there isn't anything happening. We've dried up like spiritual prunes. Sometimes we even start to look like that. Don't be like that. We're told here. Instead, he says, be imitators of the ones who have shown us how to live through faith and endurance, or patience, if you will. How do you get patience? Through suffering and struggle and pain and endurance, you know. <laughs> Great. The word for imitators is a word that we get our word mimic from. 
So be mimics of those who have gone before, have showed you the way by their endurance in their spiritual lives. Who do you know that has shown you the way, that has endured to the very end? Follow them. Be a mimic of them. They've trusted the Lord through all the tough times. They didn't slack off. They didn't get lazy or sluggish. They've demonstrated patience or or endurance in life. And now, now they're inheriting God's promises. That's great. That's our expectation, those promises. Later, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, you're familiar with the the flow of Hebrews, right? Later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, he's going to give us this big, long hall of honor, isn't he? A list of all of those who have endured to the end, even though they couldn't see what was happening, and now they're enjoying God's promises. But they had the assurance of the expectation of that, and now they're there follow them. Be mimics of these people that he will talk about later in the book of Hebrews. Or be mimics of those in your own life that you know have stuck it out, who have followed through, who have endured and have taught you how to do that. Hang in there. Stick it out. Real Christians don't quit. In the book Stories for the Journey, William R. White tells about a European seminary professor named Hans and his wife Enid. World War II forced Hans and Enid to immigrate to the United States, actually to flee to the United States as refugees. They came to the United States, became citizens, and Hans was a gifted Bible teacher, and so he began to teach in a seminary. And everybody loved Hans. He was warm, gentle, he, taught, he, he brought scripture to life for years as he taught in this seminary. Hans and Enid were very much in love. And nearly every day, they took long walks together on the campus holding hands, and they always sat close in the church until one day Enid died, overwhelming Hans with sorrow, this Bible professor. Worried because he wouldn't eat, He wouldn't take walks anymore. The seminary president, along with three other friends, visited him regularly, but he remained lonely and depressed. Experiencing the dark night of the soul, Hans told his friends, I am no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I am not certain I believe in God anymore. Bible teacher, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. After a moment of silence, the seminary president said, Then we will believe for you. We will make your confession for you. We will pray for you. So the four men met daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their dear friend and colleague. Months went by as Hans gathered with the four friends. And they prayed every time. And one day, as they gathered, he smiled and he said, It is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today I would like you to pray with me. I've come back. The dark night of the soul had passed. You know, instead of carrying Hans to Jesus on a stretcher like in the Gospels, they had carried him to Jesus on their prayers. 
But I want you to notice the principles in that story that reflect what we see in this passage in Hebrews. God doesn't quit on us even when we quit on God. Christians who love the Lord's name serve his people, especially when those people feel overwhelmed by the struggles of life and the sorrows that they are going through. These men stuck with him and served Hans in prayer, even when it was beyond his ability to respond and to cope. Their faith carried him who had no faith anymore. Is that not what the body of Christ should do for one another? The Christian life is not lived in isolation. Very important. We, we live in an American culture that looks at things independently. And we tend to approach our Christian life independently. It's me and God. But many have taught over the years that salvation is, a, is also corporate. It has to do with the relationships in the body. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Serving one another. Holding one another. Caring for one another. That's body life. We love the Lord when we can serve each other like those men served Hans. That's what church is about. And should accomplish for one another. But I want you to notice something else. Hans didn't run away, did he? He endured. He kept going every day to that prayer meeting, even though he couldn't pray in the dark night of his soul. He stayed. He stuck with it. Even when he couldn't pray himself, he endured. So often, I see people run away from the Lord. That's our first temptation, isn't it? To run away. And from other Christians... And then wonder why we never feel the full assurance of our hope in Christ. Now remember, he's still talking about sensing that full assurance. It's going to be hard to sense it when you're running away from other Christians. And when you're out on your own. And when you're running away from the Lord. And you're not responding to him, right? Hard to sense any assurance. Hans stuck with it. Every day. And in the end he experienced the reassurance of his faith in the Lord. He inherited the promises of God by faith. I'm sure you've seen the commercials about athletes with the familiar quip, God game. Well, the Bible often uses athletic metaphors, of course, for the Christian life. We're, we're runners in a marathon, right? We're athletes competing for the prize, Paul talks about. The question for us spiritually is not so much have we got game, but have we got faith? Real faith. This is not the kind of faith that wilts under fire or withers in the heat. It's not the kind of faith that looks good for a while but doesn't last. It's not the kind of faith that looks good for now but then gets sluggish and slack and lazy. This is the kind of faith that is active. It is hardworking. It is serving. This is the kind of faith that serves others because we love the Lord's name. We want to reflect well on Him. And when we're down and when we're struggling, it is the kind of faith that, that says, I, I can't cope for now, but, but I'm going to stick with it. 
And God reassures in the end. When life seems like it has passed us by, do we persevere in our faith? Do we serve others with our prayers? You know, the real heroes of the faith are those who serve with diligence and endure to the end. Those are the heroes in God's hall of honor. During his time as the U.S. Division Director of Wycliffe Bible Translators, Bernie May used to write a column in the ministry's newsletter. And in one of those columns, he wrote about a couple named Ken and Neva Shoemaker of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They were faithful supporters who were in their 80s at the time that he wrote the column. We're on our last lap, Ken told Bernie on the phone one day. And he re- reflected in the column. We're on our last lap now. We're in our 80s. But we are committed to spend three hours a day in prayer, mostly for Wycliffe missionaries. The other day, Ken said, Neva was awfully tired. She said she didn't know whether she was able to pray the full three hours. I told her, Come on, don't let up. We've got to finish the course. That day we prayed three and a half hours. (laughs) Now there, there are some real heroes of the faith. They may not get the accolades, the applause. They may not be visible to lots of people. Their work for the Lord may not be known really much even in their church, right? But God knows. God knows. They're the real heroes of the faith. Got faith? Father, you know what no one else knows. You know the challenges each one in this room faces this week. Maybe few others do. But I pray that you would give strength and courage to carry out and to run that race that you have called each one to run and to hold each other up in prayer and encouragement as we run that, great, that race together in this church. In Jesus' name, I pray. And bring us the sense of your assurance, of the expectation we have, of the promises you have made to us, that you will carry out for us in your time.